And now I'm going to read to you from Mark's Gospel, from Mark 11, starting at verse 27, and that's on page 1016 in the Church Bibles. So starting at Mark 11, verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why don't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, they beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. <laughs> Let me just pray for Mike. Father God, we just pray for Mike now as he comes to preach to us from your word. We pray that the truth of this word will, come in, will touch our ears and that you will change our hearts as well through the word that Mike preaches to us now. Amen. Thanks so much, Joanna. We did some very effective sign language there. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Mike, one of the pastors, and I'll be preaching from that passage uh, in our series on Mark's Gospel. What does a t-shirt 
tell you about someone. You know, T-shirts with messages on them. Our family went to, for a walk yesterday in Richmond Park, and I was intrigued by the T-shirt. I saw a young man wearing a grey T-shirt with big letters, my life is my own. My life is my own. Why is he wearing it? Your T-shirt says geek. I've just noticed that. It's fantastic. Anyway, let's stay on track. When we got home, I googled that shirt, and I discovered it was a quote from a classic TV series called The Prisoner, cult TV series. But there were plenty others like it. Here are some other T-shirts. I create my own life. Make your own rules. Your life, your choice. Creator of my own happy life. And how about this one? To the people who have an opinion about my life, please allow me to show you to the door. Mind your own business. And my favorite, my life is a romantic comedy. Without the romance, I just laugh at my own jokes. <laughs> now, these statements reflect something that's pretty basic and fundamental to most human hearts, which is that we really want to be in charge of our own lives, and we think that's what we've got, and no one else should tell us what to do, especially if we're modern Westerners. And following Jesus Christ is the opposite of that. He becomes the captain of the ship, uh, the Lord, the Lord. And we're in the last weeks of a series on the Gospel of Mark, which we've called The, the World Turned Upside Down, because Jesus Christ turned the world of his hearers upside down, his people, who, the people who were around him, Christianity turned the, 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 world, the ancient world upside down within the next four centuries and, and formed much of what we still live on the basis of. And what we find as, as followers of Jesus is that he turns our world upside down in a really, really amazing way. Following Jesus requires a fundamental reorientation. And just in the last couple of chapters, we've been getting a kind of breathtaking view of, of how extensive that would be. Jesus teaches extraordinary things. If you want to follow me, he says, you want to be great, the one who wants to be first must be the very least, the very last. You must be, become a servant of all. That's what greatness in Jesus' kingdom looks like. That's upside down. Moral responsibility, he says, your sins... The choices you make are not just about you, they also affect other people, anyone in your sphere of influence. If you could undermine them, it would be better for you if you cut off your hand or your foot or gouged out your own eye than to cause someone else to stumble into a, a mortal sin. What about sexual integrity? Jesus challenges us, don't look for loopholes to get away with the, your personal uh, indulgence. God rules your sex life through his principles in his word, and be people of utter integrity. What about wealth? Jesus confronts the, the thinking of his culture and says, you know, it's very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, because if you're rich, you feel you don't need help, whereas to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be a person who knows they've got nothing and needs to depend. So give up all rivals to Jesus thrown in your life. The only treasure that really matters is the treasure in heaven. These are huge, huge claims, huge, astonishing claims on our lives. But, you know, if you're going to let someone change your life like that, you need to be confident that they have the authority to do so. So I've got two points from this section, uh, two, two headings today, but the second one I want to really drill into applying it. The first point is the authority of the Son. 
Jesus, the authority of the Son. And the second point is the sending of the Son. Firstly, the authority of the Son, picking up at verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. And notice this, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Authority is in view. It's a big question. And the thing that had made the most lasting impression on Jesus' followers, and the thing that caused the greatest offense to his opponents was his claim to authority. He spoke and acted with the greatest of authority. He spoke and acted effortlessly with the authority that they knew would belong only to Almighty God. Right from the beginning of his ministry, in chapters 1 to 3, if you've been around a while, you'll remember this. Jesus demonstrated his authority, his physical authority over all kinds of sickness. He can heal anyone. His spiritual authority, he can cast out demons. He's Uh, has authority over the unclean spirit world, exorcisms. His intellectual authority, he teaches with absolute authority. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, truly, I say to you. He has authority even over the wind and the waves of creation and over death itself. And all along people have been asking, where does he get his authority? It's not obvious. You look at Jesus, he looks like an ordinary person. Where does he get this authority? And now as the story heads towards its climax, Jesus is in the most authoritative place in his culture, the temple in Jerusalem. And he stands before a delegation of the most authoritative group in his culture, the Sanhedrin. And they're asking him about authority. Where do you, who gave you the right to do these things? Verse 27, these three groups, the uh, chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, these were three groups that made up the ruling council for the Jewish people, for Judaism. A group of 71 men called the Sanhedrin. The chief priests were former priests, uh, senior ones, and priests with permanent duties in the temple. The teachers of the law were the, the legal experts of the culture. They were the learned ones. They knew the Bible like the back of their hand. They knew the law. And the elders are laymen, but they're drawn from the wealthy aristocrats. So this is the the, the establishment. This is the ruling council. And notice that all three of these groups are here talking to Jesus. So this is not just another chat. This isn't just a conversation. It's an official delegation from the ruling council that has absolute religious power and and some political power in the country. So this is quite ominous for Jesus. And in verse 28, they ask these two questions. By what authority do you do these things and who gave it to you? Now, why are they asking this? Answer, because Jesus is a threat to them. Imagine you are driving along and you come to a big crossroads in a big city, and there is complete chaos. The the traffic is chaotic. All the the traffic lights have failed. People are driving driving in and out and, and, you know, starting to toot their horns and stuff. And all of a sudden, a young woman steps in, and she takes charge, and she directs traffic. She stops some cars, and she, she gets others to come through, and she sorts it all out. And then when it's all sorted, the police arrive too late, and they take it to one side. And they say, Oi, who gave you the authority to do this? 
Now that's what's happening here. These religious leaders know that their power base is threatened by a young prophet from up north, from Galilee. So this is a direct challenge in front of the crowds. Everyone's watching. And in verse 29, Jesus replies, as he sometimes does, with a question. I will ask you one question first, he says. And it might look evasive, but it's actually clear here that Jesus is not trying to evade or escape. From the triumphal entry, which we thought about last week onwards, he is now engaging directly. So what is he getting at with his question? Look at it there in verse 29. I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Jesus often asks questions or makes mysterious statements that you have to stop and think about. If you will stop and search and seek and inquire, you will find him. And so these questions that Jesus is asking are always an invitation to us to go deeper. To those who are serious about finding him, Jesus can be found. But to those who resent Jesus, who resist him, he always remains obscure. Where are you today? Many objections to Christian faith appear rational on the surface, and they are rational. But often those questions, are, those, those objections are motivated actually by an emotional resistance to control. If Jesus is who he says he is, then I'm afraid what might happen to me. I'm afraid what might happen to my t-shirt. My life is my own. So beneath our intellectual objections to Jesus, which are serious, lie personal fears. In fact, no one can really argue about faith in a completely objective way because faith has too many personal implications. If you grant that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then your whole life has to change. How can you be an unbiased evaluator of such a question? And here is a question, verse 30. John's baptism, was it from heaven or human origin? Tell me. Now, this is brilliant because a few years before, just a very short time before, John the Baptist had risen up out of nowhere He's an unschooled, unaccredited prophet wearing vintage clothes and he has a national impact on the people calling everyone back to God and baptizing them in the River Jordan and turning the nation towards God and turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and so on. And everyone knew that and it had been a real high point. And so the tide of public opinion is so much in John's favor that the leaders now are backed into a corner. They can't come out against John. If they say, oh, John the Baptist is just human origin, the crowd are going to turn on them. And Jesus, what he's saying here is, I'm aligned with John. If his authority was from God, then you can see how mine is too, can't you? I'm very similar to John. But actually, Jesus is going even further than that. Remember what happened back at Jesus' baptism in chapter 1. The heavens, the clouds parted, the heavens split, and a voice came from heaven the foundational moment of Jesus' whole ministry. He was baptized by John and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove and the voice of God the Father spoke, giving him the supreme divine approval. You are my son 
whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So you see, in this cryptic answer to the leaders, Jesus is actually giving them a clue to his identity. What is the answer to the question, where do you get the right to do these things? Answer, from God, the Father, who endorsed and sent me and empowered me by his Holy Spirit. And on the Mount of Transfiguration spoke again and said again, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. That's where the authority comes from. But these guys aren't seriously inquiring, were they? We knew that. So in verses 31 to 32, they, they kind of go a bit political and they mutter amongst themselves. Look at verse 31. They discussed it amongst themselves. You can almost imagine them in a bit of a huddle. <laughs> what are we going to say to that? If we say from heaven, he will ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So what do they say? Verse 33, we don't know. <laughs> That's the ultimate get out, isn't it? Uh, we don't know. And it's such a disingenuous answer. They know what they think. But this is a fudge, a spin to avoid public backlash. They are Israel's spiritual leaders. So this is also a confession of spiritual bankruptcy. They got nothing. They don't know about John the Baptist, and so Jesus will not entrust himself to them. It says, neither but will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. There's the authority of the Son. Jesus. Now, second point, the sending of the Son. Verse, chapter 12, verse 1 to 12, the sending of the Son. Jesus is not trying to duck out of a confrontation and slip away. He's not hiding in the shadows now. He has to come to Jerusalem to die. He has clearly predicted it three times, each time with more details. And now he gives a fourth prediction, this time as a story. Notice in verse 1, Jesus then began to speak to them. In verse 12, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he'd spoken the parable against them. Top and tail, it's against them. It's, it's speaking to them. Everyone knows Jesus is speaking to these people about himself. Everyone knows that. There is no need to go back into the house and explain it to the disciples. No, now Jesus is going public. So why does he tell a story, this parable of the tenants? Because a parable like this shows the truth in emotionally powerful ways. A thousand years before this time, the prophet Nathan had come to the king David to confront him about his adultery. But he didn't just come and say, David, you are an adulterer. He told him a story. He said, once upon a time, there were two men in a town. One of them was rich, the other was poor. The rich man had a large number of flocks of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. He raised it. He cared for it. He brought it up with his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. One day a traveler came to town. He stayed for dinner at the rich man's house. But the rich man didn't take one of his own sheep or cattle or lambs to feed him. No, no. He seized the poor man's only lamb killed it, and served it for dinner. 
And at that point, King David burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Because David, the rich and powerful king, with all his resources and his wives, had taken the one wife of a faithful servant, Uriah. You see how much more powerful a story is? And that's what Jesus does here to the official leadership of the country. Verse 1. Once upon a time, there was a vineyard. It was carefully and lovingly put together and planted. The vines were nurtured. They were grown, they were pruned, they were trained in such a way that they would bear grapes. And then this vineyard was rented to tenant farmers, as was common practice in that time. Verse 2, the owner was to receive a share of the fruit. He sent a servant to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. That's the right thing to do. That's what they've agreed. They are the tenants, they give him a share of the produce. But in verses 3 to 5, the story goes rather dark. They seize the servant. They beat him. And they send him away empty-handed. And then it escalates. Verse 4. They, he, the, 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 the man sent another servant to them. This one, they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another. And that one, they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they killed. There's an escalation here. And then in verses 6 to 8, the story gets even more intense. We might say it gets really disturbing because now the owner sends the beloved son. Verse 6, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. And he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son, won't they? But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And the outcome of this insane reasoning and this grievous offense is verse 9. They will be utterly destroyed. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Time's up. And by verse 12... Everyone knows that Jesus is telling the story about the leaders. He doesn't need to say, you are the men. It's obvious. So the characters in this story are clear to those who listen, especially those who know their Old Testament, who know their Hebrew Bible. The vineyard is a picture of the people of Israel, God's special inheritance. God compares Israel to a vineyard, especially in Isaiah chapter 5. And the servants is a common way of referring to the prophets. The prophets were the servants of the Lord. And that too was well known. Many of them had been treated in just this manner. They'd gone to the people. They tried to reason with them. They've said, thus says the Lord. And they pleaded with them and warned them. And again and again and again, the people had treated them shamefully. Some of them they had killed. They rejected them, beaten them, got rid of them. And the leaders know all this. And so who is the son in verse 6? This is the part of the story that isn't quite so obvious. He has one left, a son whom he loved. Have we heard that terminology before in Mark's gospel? This is my son 
whom I love. Listen to him. So the son is Jesus. And the wicked tenants are the religious leaders, the people of Israel. They have failed in their duty to be a nation that yields good fruit for God as a vineyard should. They have greedily tried to usurp the rights of God over his people. They have turned the temple into a cash cow, a very cushy number. And soon they will kill the son on the cross. And the father has sent the son. And the son, knowing all this, has come. The authority of the son, the sending of the son. As I said, there's only two points, but there's a lot of application. What does all this mean for us? You and me this week. What does knowing this do to our lives on Monday morning at the toddler group? or at school, college, in the workplace, in the lecture theater, in the hospital, in the factory, in the shop, in the warehouse, driving your van, changing nappies, spending time with your family, spending time with other seniors. How should this change us? What is the real world cash value of knowing about the authority of the sun and the sending of the sun? Three powerful lessons. Forbearance, folly, and fruit. Forbearance. Notice the patience of the owner. His forbearance. We get to listen in on the thought processes of the owner in this. He, he sends one and to, send, to collect the thing, and they, 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 they get rid of him, and he sends another, and he sends another, and he had one left, and he sent him last of all, and this is what the owner thinks. They will respect my son. Wouldn't you think so? He's carefully prepared this vineyard, but he's reaped only insults in the form of battered and murdered servants. So why does he send his son? This tells us something profound about the nature of our God. God is like the owner. He's so patient and long-suffering. Scripture even describes him as a husband who's been betrayed and yearns to get his wife back. God keeps on pursuing humanity, even when he has been coldly rejected. Such is the greatness of his love. Friends, does this truth about God shape your relationship with him? Do you realize how patient God is with you? How how patient and kind he's been to you for your entire life since the moment you were born. Think about your sins. How offensive they are in the sight of a holy God and how much time he gives you to change. Our God is like the owner. Think about his forbearance. Surely that should change us. Should shape our relationship with God. Father, thank you that you are so patient with me. Help me not to try your patience. Help me to live in your presence day by day and please you more and more. That is forbearance. Secondly, folly. We learn about folly. How foolish it would be to presume upon the patience of such a kind God. Romans says, behold the kindness 
and severity of God. But that is exactly what these tenant farmers do. They presume on the kindness and patience of God. And we get to listen into their thinking as well. And their thinking is actually quite mad. Have a look back at this, what they think, they say, this scheme, this crazy scheme in verse 7. This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. In what world would that plan work? It's so vain in both senses of the word vain. It's vain because it's empty, and it's vain because it's self-flattering. They take no account of the owner of the vineyard, God, in their calculations. They live life as if God doesn't really have authority over them. And yet there will be a moment when the rent comes due on your life too. To live life as if God is not a reality is in some ways to be insane. And we're just like them. We're just like them. By the way, Christians are like them too, so don't think I'm talking only to non-believing people here. Consider the foolish hearts of people in every generation who think that we can seize control of everything in our lives and push God out of the picture. Are you doing that right now? How's that working for you? What T-shirt do you wear? Did they really believe that by murdering the son they could inherit? It's crazy. But do humans think that by erasing Jesus from their lives, they can take control of their destiny? Yes, they do. So this story is showing us the sheer folly of living life in denial of the reality of God. Imagine a single mum. She's got one child, a son. She loves him. She loves him with all her heart. She's so poor, she works three jobs to provide for him. She works all day in a warehouse and at night and in the morning cleaning offices. She washes his clothes and cooks his food. She makes his packed lunch. She listens to his problems, encourages him in all that he does. When he falls over, she picks him up and sits him on her knee. When he cries, she holds him to her bosom and wipes away his tears. She's always there for him. She gives up her comfort and her life for him. He wants to go to university, so she works even harder to find the money. She pays and pays and gives and gives all that she has, and she is so proud when he finishes law school and moves to the city. A photo of his graduation ceremony stands on the sideboard in her house, and she stands at his side, worn out, exhausted, but happy. And there he is. Now, what would you think of that son if I told you this? He enjoys the life his mother gave him, and he lives it to the full, but he never phones. He never visits. He never asks how she is. He thinks he can pay her off by sending her a check every month to help with the bills. What would you think of such a son? Is it right that the mother gave her life in return for a check every month? Or does she actually deserve relationship? You know the answer. You would think, shame on him. And that is how we treat God. We love the life he's given us. We enjoy many good things in his world. 
the world that he made and lets us live in. But while we are enjoying the gifts, we are ignoring the giver. We snub him, the greatest one of all. But actually, we are worse than that. Because not only do we ignore God much of the time, there are times when we become acutely aware of God. It's when our life goes wrong. And at that time, we turn on God angrily and demand that he come through for us. We lash out in spite and rage. How dare God treat us like this? How could he be a God of love and allow suffering, especially my suffering, all the while failing to realize that this suffering might be the only way that God has to get through to you, his trumpet blast to waken a sleeping world. Such is our folly. I remember years ago when I was headhunting, worked in the West End of London, a non-believing colleague, he had no Christian background at all. He'd known I was a Christian. He came to speak to me one day, sort of quietly, you know, so no one would hear. And he said, I've been thinking a lot about religion recently. I wonder if you've got a book or something. And I talked a bit to him, and he, it was because his wife had had a miscarriage, first, first pregnancy, and she'd had a miscarriage. And he said, I was thinking about it, and I realized I was getting angry at God. And then I thought, I've got no right to be angry with God. I don't give him the time of day. <laughs> the guy saw it, do we? So, such is our folly. And yet God is rich in mercy. He reaches out to us who have spurned his love again and again and again. And our text reveals the lengths to which God will go in order to pursue us. He will send the beloved son. And Jesus quotes Psalm 118. There it is in verse 10. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, even the rejection of Jesus, the stone rejected by the builders, even the rejection, the suffering, the death of the Son, are part of God's plan. See that again? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. You know, friends, we are treading very much on holy ground here. How can it be that human wretchedness and folly and rejecting the kindness of God and, and murdering the son who he loved on the cross, how could that be God's plan? to make Jesus the chief part of the building. How could it be that the Lord has done this? It really is marvelous in our eyes. And we can't get our mind fully around this. We're holding here a doctrine, two doctrines together, the doctrine, the teaching of human responsibility, which is real. We are responsible agents. And yet divine sovereignty, that God is ultimately in control and will work all things out for good. Acts chapter 2 puts it like this. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death on the cross. You see those two things are being held there in tension? This was the man, Jesus, was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God planned it. And yet you're responsible. With the help of wicked men, you put him to death. Or more poetically, in the life of Joseph back in the Old Testament, Genesis 50, Joseph says to his brothers who'd sold him into slavery, 
and thought he'd been sent, sent away for good. Uh, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph was a little picture way, way back of Jesus. They intended to harm him, but God intended it for good to save many lives. Now, can I ask, is there one person here who actually understands the gospel but knows they have never submitted to Jesus as Lord? Just one person who knows the gospel but you've never obeyed Jesus as Lord. Friends, that is folly. Don't try God's patience. Come to him today. Remember his patience for you, forbearance. Finally, fruit. I thought a bit about fruit last week. You know, the fig tree didn't bear fruit. There was a picture of the temple where religious activity was very bustling and busy, but it was busy fools. There was no real fruit. The final thing we learn here is about the importance of fruit. You know Jesus' parables are a bit like a boomerang. You throw the boomerang throw it over there, but it has a habit of coming back and hitting you in the head. Especially those of us who know, think we know the answers, and we've been thinking all along that this parable is about someone else. You know, we are so prone to sit in a sermon and think, if only so-and-so was here. Don't forget what Nathan said to David, the punchline. You are the man. You are the woman. You may be thinking, wow, this parable is aimed at the religious leaders, the Jewish people. What has it got to do with me? Everything. Here's why. Jesus' story teaches us that there's great danger if we don't change our ways. There's grave danger in religion. I hope I've got your attention. There's grave danger in being in an evangelical, Bible-believing church. Of all things, you could be in worse danger here than if you weren't in church. Because here you you are now responsible because you've heard this. God is a just judge. He's not fooled by appearances. He's not fooled by how loud you sing or how much you put your hand in the air like you just don't care. God is not fooled by how many times you serve on a rotor or how much you give. He's not fooled by your apparent religiosity. He wants your heart. He wants you to bear fruit in keeping with Jesus. So if you're part of the vineyard, make sure to bear fruit, friends. Fruit that counts. Now what kind of fruit does Jesus expect from his followers? Chapter 11, verse 17. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. He expects that our church will be a place of prayer for all those who don't know him, that they would come into his kingdom. He expects that the church will be a people of believing prayer. Chapter 11, verse 24. I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. That we will be people depending on God for everything in our lives. Not just going to him when things are difficult. That we will be a people of prayer. Are we? Jesus expects that the church will be a forgiving place. Verse 25. Of chapter 11. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against, if you hold anything against anyone, that's quite extensive, isn't it? Forgive them, 
so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Wow! If you, listen, if you are here today and you hold something against someone, some grudge, sorry, I was a bit loud, some, some grudge, something against it, you, you probably know, you're thinking about it now, think about that person. Jesus says, let it go. Or you are not going to be forgiven by your Father in heaven. Forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. That's fruit. The fruit of a forgiving heart. See, this is going deep, isn't it? Jesus expects us to be lovers of God. Over the page, verse 30 of chapter 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He expects us to love our neighbors as ourselves. A neighbor is anyone in your sphere of influence. David Garland, a New Testament scholar, says this. In other words, God expects the vineyard, his people, to be an accepting, prayerful, forgiving, devoted, and loving fellowship built around his son. That's fruit. God expects the vineyard, us, King's Church, Chesington, to be an accepting, prayerful, forgiving, devoted, and loving fellowship built around Jesus. When it becomes something other than that, it courts God's judgment. And this is one reason why churches die, because they became something other than that. Christian friends, are you bearing fruit in keeping with your confession of Christ? When John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus, he preached this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So are we doing that? Two diagnostic questions to finish with. Internal fruit, external fruit. Internal fruit, are you growing as a Christian? Or are you as spiritually weak as last year? For example, are you more loving, more self-controlled, more gracious, more humble, more peaceful, more giving than you were this time last year? Are you bearing fruit? What was the last sin that you looked at and said, I'm done with this, I'm really going to turn from it. I'm not doing it anymore. That's repentance. That's internal fruit. External fruit. Are you having more impact for good on the people around you? Are, you, are more people growing and being touched by God's love through you than last year? And what I would encourage you to do is to ask someone who knows you, perhaps over Sunday lunch, am I growing? Am I bearing fruit? There's no room for complacency here. Think of the, the kindness and patience, the forbearance of the Father. How patient he is with us. Think of the folly of living in denial of him. And think of the kindness and grace of the Son. He was sent and he came. He's the one we're called to bear fruit for. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you speak truth to us, uh, which we needed to hear. 
And we get this mixture of feelings when we come to your word, which is we're so rebuked by it. We look in the mirror and see things that are wrong and deformed in us. Habits, practices, attitudes, heart, things in the heart. Lord, we think, have mercy. But at the same time, you're so patient, so kind. Lord Jesus, you knew what you were getting into. And you came for us. And you speak to us today and you send your spirit into this very room. So do a good work in us today, we pray. And help us bear fruit. Amen. Amen. Let's stand when the music...